I have some material from James Gould Cousins' latest work uh, that is so sensational and so important that I couldn't um, um, not uh, do some uh, um, treatment of it in light of Protestant Episcopal. So this is P.E. Part 2, and it's intentional because the, the, the stories I'm going to tell, they're just two passages, are so uh, deep and so appropriate and so overwhelming and, in my opinion, so quite shattering. Uh, th- there's a little bit more than meets the eye. This is just not a sort of National Geographic Society lecture tour through the worlds of the Episcopal Church as conducted by a kind of agnostic, skeptical, open-eyed recorder of truth, which is what Cousins was. There's something more to it if you've been involved in the church, because when you read Cousins on the Episcopal Church, whether you're a bishop in the Episcopal Church today, a rector in the Episcopal Church, a vicar, a layman, a member of a congregation, a new person, uh, and there are um, hundreds of thousands of such people, or someone just interested in American religion and personal parochial religious history, these um, there's something very deep here, because you, you see some of the deeper issues going on relating to church life, many of which actually ultimately have to do with psychological ecological projection, men and women, children, fathers and sons, fathers and daughters, mothers and sons, mothers and daughters, and there's sort of a, 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 a larger, bigger, macro picture, which is also given for life. And I want to thereby do, I cannot leave um, Cousins on P.E. without doing justice to two further uh, bits in his work, one of which is short and one of which is actually needs to be told in full. The first is the account in the 1968 collection of short stories. This is very late, Cousins. And this is a late short story, a long one entitled Eyes to See. And it's about a young boy, and of course it's autobiographical in many ways, although always uh, uh, oblique uh, <clears throat> and always created by many different uh, memories. Uh, this is Cousins talking about a young boy away at school, at Kent School, who's, uh, in this case, his mother has died suddenly. And he's in the bosom of the Episcopal Church, his family, and the church service, uh, his mother's funeral. He's about uh, 14, uh, 13. He's about 13. Uh, his mother's funeral is occurring, and there's a lot of family dynamics. And in fact, uh, there's an extremely interesting, not-so-subtext, about members of the family who'd left the Episcopal Church and gone off to found a kind of uh, Owens, um, what is it, um, a Brook Farm type of religious community with all sorts of weirdnesses um, of separating the sexes and not separating the sexes that occurred. And there's kind of this black sheep skeleton in the family history of some people who got a little real religion and went off and became part of a a mid-19th century communitarian American movement that became really part of the weird side of American. American religiosity, and that plays a real role. But in this little section, uh, this young boy with open eyes is observing his mother's funeral. Now listen to this part. This particular thing has happened in my ministry about eight times. This exact thing has happened eight times in my ministry, and I'll read it to you. I distinctly remember, this is page 324 of the book Children and Others, I distinctly remember one more moment of my mother's funeral. At a point prearranged by Dr. Canfield as convenient or appropriate, the prayer book's order of service was interrupted. Among my mother's college friends was a woman who had become an opera singer. I forget her name. She was then a minor contralto at the Metropolitan. She was seated in the chancel wearing a square black choir cap. At a nod from the organist, she arose to sing the hymn, The Strife is O'er, The Battle Done. Breaking suddenly out, surging to tower over the low organ accompaniment, the power of that professional voice fairly staggered me. 
Sung full-throated, full-lunged, the triple alleluia coming after the last verse seemed to set the very fabric of the stone church trembling. However, on that thunderous last note of singing, and on the instant of deep silence that followed, my recollection fails. I can't remember the service ending, nor my mother's casket being removed, nor our leaving the church. Now, let me say what happens there. Someone dies, <clears throat> and there used to be the tradition that the strife is or the battle done was normally sung at Episcopal services. A very beautiful hymn, you remember. And it has that triple alleluia uh, that, uh, at the beginning, at the end. Now, uh, this is often a solo, but not often a hymn. But there's also a tradition. What happens is someone horns in. Some member of the, some friend of the deceased, some member of the family. It's almost always distant. Somebody who's sort of celebrated in the family as being a, a big league singer or a fine soprano asks if she or he can sing. And uh, they, they do. It's usually a female, uh, at least in my experience. And uh, this person who basically is on the edges of the emotional situation uh, gets to have her big moment and uh, is given a solo. And it's characteristic of this, this hymn. And usually it's one of these sopranos who is, you know, they're, they're just very much into themselves. They're enormously self-preoccupied people, uh, this, these, these soprano people. And especially they don't know anybody. So it's really for them a kind of performance with gravity. And they get up and they sing this and they're, if they have a good voice as he says what does he say full-lunged full-throated uh, they actually they stagger everybody and the whole place when they hallelujah 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 and they hold it and it shatters the glass and the whole place shakes and it's powerful you can say oh it's an enormous affirmation of the Christian triumph of the resurrection of the three sad days are quickly sped he rises gloriously from the dead yes but usually it's really someone's ego trip to be I tell you the truth no one ever says it but if you watch it and he sees it, this writer at his mother's funeral, and it is so absorbing that he forgets the rest. Notice he doesn't remember the end of the service, the casket being removed, nor leaving the church. He doesn't even remember the farewell to his mother's casket because it's been taken over by someone's ego moment. Well, that, just when I read it, I said, oh, golly, that explains so many times, has a kind of family person on the third rung of the emotional register here completely hijacked the service with a histrionic version of the strife is or well you may say well that's very specific well it happens all the time as i said it's happened eight or nine times in my ministry of 30 years before hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people but people don't even remember they don't understand they don't see it and you the darn clergyman you have to sit there and you see it all because you've seen it all before and you know exactly what's going on it also happens at weddings but it more upsettingly happens at funerals. You are upstaged. Not you. Everybody's upstaged. The child is upstaged who's mourning his mother. Everybody gets upstaged. Now, uh, another, and this is really what I wanted to dwell upon because I cannot leave P.E., without uh, offering the account that uh, Cousins offers in Morning, Noon, and Night, his 1968 novel, Morning, Noon, and Night, which is autobiographical, uh, although not strictly autobiographical. It's an end-of-life novel in which he is looking back on his life. Uh, Henry Worthington is looking back on his wife, life, uh, and this was reviewed horribly by John Updike. And the, the book has a lot of flaws. You can see that he had been unhinged by the criticism of By Love Possessed, which is another chapter. And <clears throat> the book ends, uh, uh, to me, unresolved in this, because he himself must have been unresolved, but passages in it attain greatness, and one of them is the one I'm going to read, greatness at least of insight. And uh, he's looking back in his life. By the way, 1968 was the same year, I believe, in which um, uh, Thornton Wilder's uh, 
um, big uh, last novel, The Eighth Day, was published. Isn't it amazing? In the late 1960s, in 1968 of all years, you know, the, the great year of European Revolution and all the other things that happened in connection with Crosby, Stills, Nash and & Young, and here we are. And yet these books, which really are illuminating of a life as it was in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, uh, universal novels, and we have them now, but they were written and published in 1968. Well, in Morning, Noon, and Night, we have... Um, a uh, Worthington is divorced for many years. His wife was unfaithful uh, in a serial way uh, in their married life, and Henry Worthington is uh, visiting. Uh uh, his uh, his wife, his first wife, is dying. Henry Worthington's been married again, and his second wife died, and now he's a widower. <clears throat> and his first wife, <clears throat> who had been the broken up the marriage in this case, his first wife is now dying of cancer, and she's living over a kind of antique shop that she had run as a kind of voc- avocation in her life, and uh, she's alone, and uh, he's really doing a very good thing and loving thing, and, and really looking after and making sure that his wife's dying period is is well stewarded medically and he's looking in on his first wife and he's with his daughter, their daughter Elaine Uh, he's not estranged from his daughter of his first wife he's very close to her and he is discussing her treatment now what you're going to find out is that Henry Worthington's uh, uh, first wife was the daughter of a clergyman whose name was Canon Conway, and he was uh, uh, he was um, the uh, the rector of the uh, uh, he became the rector of the College Town Episcopal Church where Henry Worthington uh, met uh, his wife, the daughter of the then rector. And so we have we had an Episcopal rector, Canon Conway. We have the, his daughter Judith, the uh, first wife of Henry Worthington, and their daughter. Therefore, their three generations, Elaine, and we have a discussion, and this is uh, kind of a mystery opens up that has enormous implications for people's inward lives, and I'm going to read it in full because it's absolutely... it cuts the nerve to a deeper, a deeper aspect of, uh, of life in, in at least the Episcopal Church. Um, <clears throat> by the way, uh, a fellow, this is Elaine speaking, happened to... Um, uh, Ask me if uh, by any chance a uh, clergyman, a Canon Conway, had been a relative of hers. What's his name? Elaine says, Baker, does it mean anything to you? I say, and remember, Elaine and Henry Worthington are speaking here about Elaine's mother, Henry Worthington's first wife, who is the daughter, in fact, of Canon Conway. I say, I'm not sure. His father may have been one of the people the canon played chess with by mail. The Washington parts fits in. That's where he was a canon, you know, at the cathedral there. Elaine says, well, it seemed funny to have her able to say, her mother, yes, he was my father. Anyway, it must have been knowing she was a clergyman's daughter that made him ask me this morning if I thought she would like to see a clergyman. I mean, I mean, a see one, a clergyman. I said I couldn't remember her ever going to church. So he said, sometimes Catholics do want one. I said, would a Catholic clergyman have a daughter? Here, not unexpectedly, we have one of Elaine's painful flippancies of pain. I must not notice in any way or she will go to pieces. I say, maybe I'd better see this, Dr. Baker. Well, if they... If they want a clergyman, a priest, patients say so, you'd never have to ask. And if he knew or knew of your mother's father, he can't suppose he was a Catholic. Elaine says, still and all, don't I remember his being just as Anglo-Catholic as hell? Maybe that's what Dr. Baker's thinking of. Why should I remember that? 
I say, I wish you were not so upset. Ask Dr. Baker if he'll see me, and then I want you to go and sit in the car. Elaine says, yes, I am upset. You see, I really don't like Mother a bit. And now look at her. Now, neither do I know why Elaine should remember. I'm going to read this because listen to carefully. The man was an Anglo-Catholic. Now listen carefully to what unwinds in Cousin's uh, penetrating discussion of the real facts of his first wife's father and his first wife's relationship to her clerical father. Neither do I know why Elaine should remember anything much about her mother's father. She was perhaps six years old when he died, and she could have seen him only once or twice, but in what she remembers, she is correct. For approximately 15 years, he was the incumbent at St. George's, to which the college community's Episcopalians went. Caleb's will, he was the founder of the college, having provided what was then a large sum for the purpose... The modest frame structure where he had attended Episcopal services had been replaced by what that day saw as a magnificent St. George's, a massive ribbed and arched edifice of burnt brick bastard Romanesque. Services in the new church quickly became well attended. No general conversion of Congregationalists in the college community was ever observed, but the number of college people who went to St. George's steadily grew. By the turn of the century, nothing odd was found in the college president presiding over daily chapel, to be sure more a roll-call device than an act of worship, as a sort of ex officio Congregationalist, while going to St. George's on Sundays. As, here it gets interesting. As a rector of St. George's, Canon Conway was quite unconnected with the college. Yet, as so often happens with college officers and faculty members, his, quote, call, end of quote, to St. George's almost certainly resulted from circumstances of relationship and association. His wife, Judith's mother, was a sister of President Abernathy, of whom I've spoken. While I don't know it as a fact, I much suspect that Canon Conway was looking for a job because the dean of the Washington Cathedral had decided the canon's zealous high church activities, and particularly his deep involvement in the doings of the Confraternity of the Blessed Sacrament, were becoming, his position being what it was, ill-advised, gravely impolitic. What he's saying there, traditionally there was a huge uh, uh, tilt um, among serious, um, this is me, Paul speaking, uh, Anglo-Catholic clergy were often involved in confraternities revol uh, re revolving around Mary, revolving around the Trinity, or revolving around uh, the uh, sacrament of the body and blood of our Lord. And these confraternities, many of which came originally from England, were sort of special interest uh, concerns or prayer concerns for, um, for uh, specific um, um, emphases within Catholicism uh, relating to the Eucharist or for uh, the Virgin Mary. Continuing. The Washington Cathedral services and functions needed often to be of a national and so non-denominational sort. Here was not a place to emphasize, quote, Catholic practice, end of quote. Amicably enough, I would judge, he remained an honorary member of the cathedral chapter all his life. A suggestion that he might be more suitably and satisfyingly employed elsewhere may have been made to him. On the face of it, St. George's, this is the college parish of which he became the rector, would hardly seem the right spot for the promotion of, quote, Catholic practice, end of quote, either. A reserving of the sacrament would have horrified Caleb Cuthbertson. But the canon, like the confraternity, may have seen it as quite a good spot, an opening for missionary work where most needed, and because it was a college town, a place where the young, so important to reach, might be reached. And anyway, the appointment could be got for him. When his installation took place, with him from Washington Cathedral, he brought his wife, the former Gertrude Abernathy, and his daughter Judith. 
then about 15. Now, are you with me here? First, we found out that when they said, the guy said Catholic, he meant Anglo-Catholic. The mother had actually, the daughter and Elaine's mother had never been to church in her knowledge as an adult ever, ever, ever. Now, <clears throat> we find out that her father, uh, the father of the, the grandfather of Elaine, the um, uh, father of Judith was in fact an Episcopal clergyman who had an agenda. He had come to this small college town to turn it after having failed at the National Cathedral, uh, which was a national church. He came to turn it into a Catholic parish with Catholic practice. And uh, we now learn, however, it gets even more interesting because now we're going to find out what in fact is Anglo-Catholicism in its strict uh, traditional format when it comes to raising daughters. At the time, Judith was a rather skinny but graceful girl, pretty in a thin-faced, dark-eyed, dark-haired way. Despite the cultish skinniness, her body showed a marked recent development, which might account for a shyly self-conscious manner, retiring and moody. But it was soon apparent that she also came in that category of faculty children who mutely resent, inwardly rebel against, the cloistered community life that their parents' positions make them live. I didn't know enough to know it then, but later I would see that roots of Judith's discontent and resentment were deeper still than that. Her father, though a gentle-spoken, kindly man, and always treating her fairly and reasonably, did not quite succeed in concealing from her the truth that religious or spiritual scruples he had developed made him regret her existence and that he would not, if he had it to do again, undertake marriage and child-getting. In short, as Elaine, distressed into flippancy so long after, was to ask, would Catholic, quote, clergymen, end of quote, have daughters? The era of Judith lay beyond correction. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. But the canon could at least see to it that more children weren't got. I don't doubt that after Judith's birth, he imposed on himself and Gertrude what the Roman church calls a frater-soror, brother-sister, relationship that let him live the celibate life he believed his holy orders required of him. Gertrude Conway apparently accepted the arrangement with no fuss of record. She could even, I remember, behave towards her husband with what would pass for harmonious attachment. But she also showed clear symptomatic signs of what I now recognize to be nervous tension, that drawn, paper-thin look of chronic endocrine deficiency or malaise that a woman might naturally suffer when united to those which have made themselves, in practice at any rate, eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm going to finish this because what's happened, in other words, the crystallizing of her father's uh, particular form, as he would put it, of Anglo-Catholic profession, it being in the priesthood, made him embarrassed about the fact that he was married and had begotten um, with uh, Gertrude, uh, the mother, a child. And this made him very skittish. And it hit her, this skittishness, relevant to one thing, hit the daughter. He was a good man, a fine man, an honorable and kindly man. But his skittishness commuted itself at the wrong age, the vulnerable age, right at the point of adolescent coming into your adulthood. It hit the daughter in such a way that the uh, wound, you might put it, was irretrievable.
And Cousins is saying that the roots of uh, the promiscuity, infidelity, anger, and really ultimately complete burning out, crashing and burning, as we say today, that afflicted Judith Conway lay in her father's particularly uh, odd form of um, circular labyrinthine guilt. And now we conclude with this paragraph, and then I'm finished, and I'll make a final point. Just as her father's care to be kind to her could not keep a child of any sensitiveness unaware of his penitent inner feeling that she was an unfortunate mistake, a living reproach to him, her mother's state of tension must press disturbingly on her consciousness, all the more so since here again what transpired to her could be only a kind of secret scary something never identified clearly or given a name. I must wonder whether this is the type of childhood experience, rather than the sudden short shock, however severe, that can prove truly and lastingly traumatic. It seems to me possible, concludes Cousins, that a child's presentative grasping of guiltiness secretly felt about her by her father, and a consequence conviction that for hidden, ununderstandable reasons she was unwanted, particularly when going with a similar presentative grasping of mystery in her mother's ill-being, the secret mental discomforts that gave mother no peace, the nervous debility that wastes her body, and lived with year after year, must be bound to shape or misshape attitudes of mind, and so foster permanent instabilities of temperament, which, when expressions of them emerge later, can look reasonless, less, reasonless, unaccountable. In other words, Cousins locates the severe dysfunction of Henry Worthington's first wife, Judith Conway, in the unnamed and ununderstandable and never clearly identified discomfort of her father with her very existence, coupled with a perceived but never identified and named and ultimately subrational, deep wasting away discomfort of a of a un, of an unloved or unloved in any complete way mother, which created ultimately uh, e e radical actings out later in the marriage that Cousins describes that completely destroy lives. They destroy Elaine, the daughter, who ends up being divorced three times, uh, and that is a mystery in late 1950s world in which Cousins is writing, but it's, so it, there, it's there, it's there, and all sorts of strange attitudes towards her own natural children from a second marriage, I believe. And we also have uh, the... Um, the uh, the consistent adulteries which begin very soon on in the marriage vis-a-vis uh, -vis Henry, uh, which uh, force him to, has to d d divorce her after the third or fourth uh, thing has come to light. And, uh, but he re remains loyal to the part that she's played and her motherhood and visits her as she's dying. Now, what a thing. 
what, are you with me in this? I mean, now we could, um, I, I very much want you to read the passage in the Williamstown Diaries uh, where he ruminates on Anglo-Catholicism. And I'm not here to throw stones at anything because Cudlip uh, uh, himself is a low churchman. Uh, Mr. Johnston is an evangelical in the formal and classic sense of evangelical in Episcopal church life. Uh, in um, we, have a, we have a low church saint in Mr. Johnston, who's an awkward character, uh, but in fact a rather saintly, humble man in Men and Brethren. And we have an Anglo-Catholic saint, father-slash-brother Carl Williver, uh, who becomes a true saint uh, in his own particular issues as he works through his own sexuality and his own uh, self-understanding in connection with his Anglo-Catholicism uh, in, uh, up in West Park or up in Garrison or whatever it is his, his monastic uh, house is for the Episcopal Church. And we have, we have uh, characters in Cousins who are wholly Anglo-Catholics, wholly evangelicals, wholly liberals, uh, uh, smart as uh, serpents and innocent as doves like Dr. Lamb, who's actually a pretty good guy and does everything he can to cover his rather unpredictable, impulsive and liberal-minded um, colleague Ernest Cudlip. And here we have, however, a, 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 I've noticed this. I, I, why it opened up so many doors? I knew about four very, very committed and extremely uh, uh, thoughtful and well-read and learned and uh, highly intentional Anglo-Catholic rectors over the years in my ministry, and then through them I met five or six others who were the real thing. Uh, but I was so shocked uh, in each case uh, as I got to know them sort of eight to nine years into the friendship to find out that they were married and had children. I mean, happily married, apparently. In other words, I would often find Anglo-Catholics who presented themselves as if they were bachelors, uh, and they, they, they weren't. Uh, I later found out that they had a wife, and occasionally I might even meet the wife, but rarely, because the wife and for whatever reason, she had her own life and lived separately, but they were married and lived together in a rectory. But it was just unknown. They did not present themselves. They never mentioned the wife. The wife never came up. The children were never mentioned in sermons, ever. You, Instead of being sort of Mr. Quiverful of Anthony Trollope in a kind of big, warm, sticky family in a kind of thatched house somewhere, uh, the, the wife was never mentioned. And uh, there was obviously some form of discomfort, at least as in talking to fellow clergy, that they had a wife at home who was changing diapers and living and trying to work and do all the things that a woman would do at home and uh, trying to run a house uh, from a rectory. And I, uh, but I, they never told me. And this happened again and again and again. Now, there are other sides of Anglo-Catholicism. There are all sorts of other types and situations. And the Reverend Carl Williver is a different sort of Anglo-Catholic. Um, and that's another dimension of it. But that's not the dimension that Cousins focuses on. Uh, he focuses on primarily the Canon Conway type of uh, Anglo-Catholic who is, he's, he's a little uncomfortable. He wants to be a Catholic. He, he, he should really be a Roman Catholic. Uh, but then he says, uh, a cousin says, parenthesis, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. He was a heterosexual man who, who quote, needed, wanted, whatever the right, desired a wife and got one. And then he, but he's still a Catholic in his heart and mind. And he has to know, what, what do I do? Well, he, he lives, but, uh, but he always ha he actually takes this fratir soror thing, which I've also known people to do on several different kinds of clergy. But this case, uh, he presents without even knowing it, a, a, an unwantedness. Uh, a theoretical unwantedness, which is a heart unwantedness, which the daughter turns into an attitude towards men that is deeply, for which one can only have enormous understanding and sympathy, in which Henry Worthington in his old age develops. And that's a great breakthrough for him to see his, his unfaithful, his serially 
his seriously unfaithful and antagonistic mean wife, as it were, to see her, uh, what's really going on there. No abuse, nothing wrong, but a feeling, you know, more than a feeling, it's a feeling. And that is um, why uh, Cousins' uh, uh, portrayal of uh, Judith Conway in relationship to Canon Conway is one of the most interesting and layered and, in my experience, illuminating pictures of Episcopal Church life or a significant facet of Episcopal Church life that I have ever read. And I only wish someone had invited me to read this these books or had asked me to be thoughtfully read these books as part of a training program uh, in, and then to reflect on them in a group as I prepared for the ministry. And no one had ever heard of them. No one knew they existed. Because you can often get through people through the symbolic substitutive acting out of a literary character. You can often see things uh, from the standpoint uh, of literature because you're, you're bringing your own experience, which immediately substitutes itself in it. Well, those are my thoughts on uh, uh, P.E., Protestant Episcopal II. And I hope the upshot of this will not only be to make you think about Episcopalianism and all its depths, because there's a lot going on here that's of great interest and actually of pretty substantial interest, material interest for the human condition, religiously and not religiously. Uh, but I hope you all be encouraged. You all go and read Morning, Noon, and Night, uh, more particularly you'll read by love possessed and if you want to go a step further with church life you'll read and it is in print i'm holding the paperback edition you'll read uh men and brethren the 1936 novel uh of uh cousins which uh really uh brings to birth his experiences that had come from his uh his um, upbringing, but more importantly, his summer of living in a New York City vicarage in 1927. La plus sans change. Thank you so much, and God bless.